Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking to T.C. Albert. Many of you have probably seen, uh, purchased, and then worn out your copy of T.C.'s book, Recreating the 18th Century Hunting Pouch. We're going to talk a little bit about what went into and what led up to the publication of that book. I think it's a neat story and I'm excited to share it with you, but we're actually going to be going back to around 1972 with T.C. here uh, when he was about 11 or 12 and how he got into muzzleloading. This is T.C. Albert. Uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, uh, you'd like to hear how I got started. And uh, basically, I'm just a farm kid growing up in Pawpaw, Illinois, and uh, surrounded by old German farmers, uh, oh, Ikes my. and Slicingers and Holzers. And uh, though though we didn't have a big farm, Dad only had about six acres. It was uh, 70s back to basics era. Okay. So I grew up doing chores with milk cows and uh, ponies and the works. Yeah. And, uh, it was fun. Uh, not really. <laughs> uh, the garden. As a kid, a, it's not very f- much fun. No, but... <laughs> dad was a German descent and, uh, Swedish and the son of a truck farmer. Uh, so he had a real specific way about how we garden. And, you know, he had three big gardens and an orchard and, uh, and, uh, three boys to take care of it all. So we kind of grew up doing that. And uh, dad figures, because at a garage sale, I think I picked him up a book with a picture of a guy in a rifle and an Indian lady on the cover. I thought dad's going to love this. And he never read it. So more or less out of spite, I did. And, <laughs> and it turned out to be uh, uh, The Great Adventure by Janice Holt Giles. Oh. And, and it just, it spurred me into to, uh appreciation of mountain men and that whole culture that I didn't know really existed, but was really starting to bubble up at that time as well with uh, Jeremiah Johnson, Frontier Fremont, all that stuff was becoming uh, popular at the same time, uh, mid seventies, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that it was real easy to transition into that with the fields around me and to trap on the creeks. And oh yeah. Man, you know, go out in the winter with moccasins and say I could survive this way and uh, uh, really try and live the life, even though I was just uh, junior high and, and early high school at the time with no guidance, you know, really just what you could find at the time in a book. Right. Uh, and and one, one, a book, nonetheless, you just stumbled on. That's it. And the good thing, there was nobody to tell me I was doing it wrong either. So. Right. <laughs> And dad didn't have any objections to us uh, playing with um, muzzleloaders and black powder at the time. Uh, he, he thought we were old enough. And in fact, we uh, at the time, you could still get your hunter safety courses and gun safety courses in PE at school. You know, you could basically huh. bring your shotgun to school on uh, shotgun day and, <laughs> and have a shooting course and a safety course and leave with your little card uh, in, in sixth or seventh grade for wow. PE. So that was a rural, rural, t- different time. Yeah. Um, so, so we had black powder and dad would make sure that he'd stop on the way home at a little gun shop and bring me some if I needed it. And, uh, I had a cousin at the time that was, he was in, in friendship, pretty big in friendship. And he had a black powder gun shop. He was actually a Joliet cop, but he had a gun shop, uh, specialized in black powder. And, and he set me up with a book. I believe it was written by Toby Bridges, or at least edited by him. It was a Black Powder Digest, I think, mm. about early 70s. Mm-hmm. And my, my cousin went through, and he, 
highlighted almost every page, you know, this is, <laughs> don't believe this. This is ridiculous. And in the back, there was a gun catalog, basically all the guns that you could get or order mm-hmm. uh, at the time. And he'd say, you don't want anything to do with this one, or this might be a good one. And really tried to help me. Yeah. He gave me an outer horn kit. I built my first horn then from a kit he gave me. And uh, I bought a Hopkins and Allen buggy rifle. It was about all I could afford at the time. It was under $100. And cut my teeth on that. Um, then I built a numeric. I think it was a numeric, like a Minuteman kit. And probably 75, 74, 75. And uh, ran the creeks with that. And uh, for Christmas, I'd get a CVA Kentucky pistol kit or something. And uh, for some reason, my parents thought that black powder might not be real because <laughs> <laughs> here's these kids you know me and my friends running up and down the creeks having shooting contests and and uh you know basically locked and loaded with black powder right and uh trying to prove that we could live this way and you know having our little camp sets and cooking raisins and different things all all seasons of the year just to see what we could do yeah uh, and emulating much of nothing but a few TV shows we'd seen and things. And, uh, but still it was a good experience. It was a good way to grow up. Yeah. And I didn't realize that it was part of something way bigger. I didn't figure that out till, uh, Oh, after I got out of the Marine Corps and, uh, uh, started going to gun shows, met him, uh, met a man who told me about a, a horn. I thought I'd make a powder horn. And it, what really got me started was uh woodworking believe it or not i there was a book put out by a guy named drew langs langsner anyway it was about green woodworking all hand oh woodworking. yeah yep and uh i thought that was the way to go you know that's about as back to basics as you could get and uh so i started doing green woodworking and started accumulating some of the axes and froze and different tools uh this would be about 1983 84 okay and, about that time, along come uh, Roy Underhill as well yep. on PBS. And boy, that really sparked an interest. And uh, I thought I had to do everything about the hardest way you could possibly do it. <laughs> yep. And uh, so I spent a lot of time doing that. But still, uh, the the draw towards the Daniel Boone and the history and all that um, of early America was real a real appeal. And I'd come across a... a section in in the book uh, by John Backless, I think is John Backless, uh, about Daniel Boone, his Daniel Boone book. And it described Daniel making a powder horn for the next hunt. And he was old. I think he was in Missouri at the time, Hmm. but he was planning to go on the next hunt and he was scraping it as thin as he could uh, with a piece of broken glass. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I can't run in the Kentucky woods in the 1760s or 70s. I can't feel what that's like, but I can make a powder horn and feel what he felt like to do that. Hmm. And uh, so I set about doing that. And uh, met. I was buying horns to do that with and uh, met a, a fellow at a gun show. And he said, well, I'll, I'll show you some horns and get you started. And he introduced me to some guys that did uh, muzzle loading. And uh, turns out it was, Guys like Jerry Noble, Kurt Johnson, and Jimmy Dressler, and, and okay. uh, all the Western guys. Yeah, and, uh, you couldn't get a better education than uh, than meeting those guys. Right. 
no, those those names are are names that I grew up hearing about and uh, here in the Midwest for sure. So yeah, that yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. It, was, it, it couldn't be couldn't have been better. Yeah, and so they they were uh, more than obliging, you know, more than mentors to share anything they could and help me. In fact, I thought uh, I'd like to get into making the guns. I loved Southern mountain rifles at a time when they were still considered a throwback. Mm. Uh, they weren't. They weren't too well received, I don't think, uh, by the general uh, gun collecting community at the time. But there was a fellow in Dixon, uh, Myron Carlson, that made the hardware, hand forged the hardware since the late 1960s. He'd been involved in friendship and and making uh, making all the parts and restoring guns and uh, pretty much a, a master at it by the time I'd met him. And I quickly realized that I'm no metal worker <laughs> and I'm, I'm besides the family constraints, you know, I'm just not that precision oriented. I, I don't know enough yeah. about it to know if that's what it is, but I know if you screw up on the metal, it's screwed up. You can't really fudge it. Right. You can't put it back on necessarily. <laughs> Unless you're Myron. I mean, he can right. stretch a barrel and do it, but, <laughs> you know, that was beyond my capabilities. And plus if I got a metal shop out in the shop, well, I've only got so much family time it, 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 to me, you know, I'm working mm -hmm. full time and, yeah. and uh, uh, it seemed better uh, that I could sit in the living room and work on a powder horn or a bag or uh, some kind of a fireside pro uh, craft, you know, rather than something as dedicated as, as uh, full-time shop work. I tried to talk my wife into letting me have a shop in the house, but mm. she, she would do it. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, kind of the standard uh, reaction. I... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The best windows are in the dining room, but no, I couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, I stuck to the horns and yeah. then each, each horn, it just kind of slowed down the horn, horn work. I said, well, you, then you need a bag. And then you need a knife, you know, and, and you could go out and forge a knife. You know, I could get free on the weekends or whatever and yeah. do a forge work. And, you know, I could keep my, I could kind of do a little bit of all of it. And uh, with Myron, I did scratch build a, a, a gun or two and uh, learned to make triggers and the temper metal, you know, different things. Uh, I've, I was incapable of learning all that he could have taught me. But uh, anyway, I did learn something and, and uh, got me on my way. Yeah. And the, at the show, I I realized who the Tanzels were, and I thought, well, that that's Midwest. Hmm. And the, and it, the more I studied about them, they kind of bridged a gap between the, the carved horns from the uh, uh, 1700s. Here, they're still working in some of them, the 1850s or yeah. so. And I thought that that's right here. That's that's a time period I'm interested in, and uh, I'll learn to carve some Tanzels. So I spent quite a few years um, just just working on on that style of horn work and a bag to go with it and a, a whole set. And uh, we'd sell it at the shows. There, there wasn't much of a social media outlet at the time. Right. Actually set up for Myron once down at uh, Friendship. Uh -huh. uh, ran his booth. That was an experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, About uh, when was that? It was pre-CLA. It was pre I don't know, or Heather was more, maybe 1993, something yeah. like that, 92, okay. somewhere in there, yep. just to, to give a guess. And uh, my daughter grew up with it, uh, it being that she wanted to be a bagpiper girl for a while. Okay. Uh -huh. I, I was uh, interested in my Scottish heritage just to a large extent. And uh, 
we did um, Highland. There's a branch of reenacting at the time that was for the Highland Games more mm-hmm. than anything. Yeah. And I learned to play the pipes and uh, did the uh, old time, the the great kilt and the works, you know, for the old time Highlanders and had some fun with that for a while. And uh, it was welcomed at our local rendezvous. Oh, uh, nice. Chaplain Crick muzzleloaders at the time. Uh, it was okay. You know, they didn't mind if that's what we did. So yeah. we got a little Panther wall tent and, uh, <laughs> and did some rendezvousing and uh, had some fun with that one when our daughter was little. And uh, uh, kind of just cut our, kept going yeah. in those directions. And then comes the CLA. And uh, that was quite a, quite a thing. It, it was, uh, it was wonderful, you know, to see something I don't even know how to describe it, to have the opportunities that that brought along. Right. And to be so, part of that. So would you say that that kind of shifted focus maybe from kind of the, the shooting and the the history side of things to totally to the artistic side of things? or It, it did to some degree because a guy could uh, – you weren't just wasting time. Right. You know, if you learned to be good, you had an outlet for your stuff. You didn't just have to keep it in a box in the back room or something. Hmm. And uh, – uh, you didn't have to wait for just a few isolated shows here in the Midwest. Um, you could get to know people that you'd only heard about before. Okay. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it seemed like a great opportunity and it definitely was. And, yeah. Uh, I was, was real happy to get involved, involved with that when they started and, uh, just to know it was there to know that there was something to strive for. Yeah. And that would have and, been in the, in the late nineties. Is that uh, right? Whenever they, we were charter members, so whenever they started, yeah. Okay. When and I should know when that is, but I don't. Ninety six, <laughs> somewhere around there, right? I think. But uh, just to guess. But in the meanwhile, at one of those uh, random type gun shotgun shows, you could still find antique muzzleloader stuff at at just a regular shotgun show. Really. I come traipsing home. Now a guy had a big box full of old pouches in various states of disintegration. Oh my. And, uh, they were unbelievably cheap. And, uh, I sorted through, you know, and I bought one that I could afford and I was dead set. I'm going to restore this thing. And when I brought it home, my wife thought it was nuts for buying such a thing, but <laughs> I did restore it and, and I patterned it and I made copies of it and it, it taught me quite a bit. I realized oh, it I was probably made out of an old boot. It looked like it was salvaged leather. You could see where the boot straps were uh, to pull the boot on were yeah. probably ditched. And, and it was pretty neat to put that back together, then make copies of it and then take it to the Prairie State show. Ah. And, uh, and a couple of guys, they said, Oh, well, you'd like to do that. I've got one you can do. And I've got one you can do. And pretty soon I was uh, restoring pouches for a uh, Jack Vi and a couple other guys would bring me some or want one like this or that. And, uh, eventually Jack brought me the, uh, the pouch that's in the book, the cover of the book, the, the one that's recreated in the book. Mm-hmm. And he bought that in an auction in Wisconsin and it came with a mall rifle from descendants of the mall family that had gone, gone there, I guess, yeah. or in a Jack. So I thought, wow, Northampton County, we could kind of put it into Pennsylvania with the gun, you know, early 19th century, you know, mid mid to early 19th century, handmade, fancy bag. The fancier the bags got, it seemed the plainer the horns got. Hmm. But it was something he wanted me to 
maybe stabilize if I could and uh, copy for sure. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. And uh, that was the first time I really went and bought a side of leather and the tools and thought I was going to do it just right. And what taught me, what gave me the confidence to do that was uh, uh, the Buck Skinner book. Um, I had an, an article about making a bag that way. Uh, so reading through that over and over, uh, that's what I did. Right. And so it, it, it turned out Jack was happy and I, I had the pattern. I made a few more people wanted them like that. Then at work, uh, I was scrolling through the track of the wolf, which was another outlet. You could send them your stuff and, uh, and have it sold, hmm. uh, uh, by them up in Minnesota, they they internet was a thing by then, and they had the ability to photograph it and uh, market it, you know, to anybody that look at their website. Right. And so you'd send something up there, and they they'd make you an offer or, or tr- offer to trade your goods for it, or tell you what what they'd sell it for and how much you'd get. So, uh, reading through their want ads, what they were looking for, they wanted somebody to write a book to go with Scott Sibley's book on uh, recreating the 18th century powder horn. Right. Okay. So I thought, you know, I was just uh, stupidly confident enough to uh, pitch a bag book. And, uh, <laughs> they, they thought it was a great idea and, and wanted to run with it. So we made that happen. And wow. that was quite an experience. Quite an experience. Uh, they were, they were masters at it. And uh, I said, they had the uh, digital camera all set up so we could just sit there and take a picture. No, there's too much flash here and take it again until it was just what they wanted. And right. Within three days uh, and probably two solid days of work, um, we'd photograph the whole book and laid it out from start to finish. Hmm. And then I came back and filled in all the words to match the photographs. Okay. So you went out there to kind of on scene, so to speak, to, to yeah. go through the process. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bonnie and I went up to, was it Elk River, I think, and uh, uh, shot it all in their, in their shop. Wow. Um, and uh, it was fun. It was quite an experience. They were, they were wonderful to work with. They knew what they were doing. I had the layout kind of, I had made a bag the finished bag and pretty much from the raw leather, I had an example of maybe 15 bags in progress, all of that same bag. Oh, so I just reach in the file and pull out. Here's the next step. And it was already done, cut out and in, in process. Right. And then, so I wasn't actually in the book building that bag from start to finish. It was multiple bags that were just uh, copies of each other, basically off the pattern. And then, staged in the right. photographs to, to make it come, come together. And it, it flowed well. And it, I did finish all of them into the same, same bags at the end, but uh, it made the process uh, pretty painless up there. It didn't take weeks or anything. It just took a couple of days. Right. Yeah. So that was, that, I couldn't believe I kept asking him over and over. Are you sure you really wanted? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You know, that, that could possibly happen. So not to, to cut you off, but at that point, um, I have a couple of questions. Like first sure. off, how, how many bags do you imagine as just a rough guess that you had gone through before that point And that opportunity came up? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's dozens, okay. probably dozens. And 
I really don't know because I'd make them and take them. And, right. You and weren't keeping track of them, you know, that not in the least. I right. was just, I was tickled. Somebody was interested in, in that. I could, you know, just basically make a different one, yeah. do another one. And, uh, Myron taught me now this goes against what a lot of guys can do or, or would do, but Myron said, your time's free. You know, if you got time to fool with this stuff, hmm. it's free. So I, I never priced myself like I was serious about it either. Um, I tried to offer what I could pay and I'm a scotch, you know, penny pincher. So I can't afford, (laughs) I can't afford to spend much. And, uh, so I would sell the bags basically for, for what I could afford. And I figured maybe somebody else could too. And I've always, they've always kind of just moved with that philosophy and I don't regret it in any way. You know, I'm happy somebody's just, just interested in the stuff really. Yeah. And I get a chance to do another, but by then it was probably dozens and I'd probably restored, you know, and made copies of at least half a dozen or so. Yeah, I would think, and uh, and more was known for the hornwork, believe it or not. But that niche was already being filled, uh, so you know I made the bags to go with the horns too. So yeah, that that was okay. And learning from the bags was was pretty amazing. Um, right, that's like an accelerated, you know, figuring well, something yeah. out. I would imagine, like looking yeah. at an original gun. And and the bags are usually deteriorated to the point that you don't mind, like, you know, tearing into, you mm. don't tear into it, but you, right. you'll give it a little stress. You'll open it up, you know, you'll look and see, and the seams are usually exposed and half torn anyway. So you can, you can tell how well was in that bag or how okay. a gusset was added or how the stitches were on the inside. You you can pretty much see the guts of the whole thing by the time I see them. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, that was that was how you learn really to see what the guy did and then to, to see what it took to copy that work yeah and do your best to copy it and it goes back to that Roy Underhill thing he taught all about witness marks from tools yeah and uh, so the, the one field kind of applied to the other field and the discipline of the old German farm stuff you know this is the right way not the wrong way mm-hmm. and uh, I could kind of put that discipline together for bags too you know yeah. knives and stuff i don't know uh, the bags uh, and the horns i know a little bit and, and can kind of copy the old the old ways to some extent uh, you mentioned there just a little bit that you were uh, kind of tasked with a few of these of stabilizing that leather yeah. not not to dive into necessarily your you know your process there but i i kind of understand stabilizing wood but i what are you doing when you're stabilizing the leather? It, it's contentious because the best thing you can do is nothing. You right. know, the best thing you can do is hide it from sunlight, keep it in a, a humidity controlled, you know, stabilized area. Okay. And then not mess with it, you know, and, and it's going to turn to dust sometime, but you're just trying to keep it from turning to dust on your watch more or less. <laughs> okay. But, but most guys aren't satisfied with that. You know, they want to get it out and show it. And stuff. Right. So, then the arguments begin about what, <laughs> what treatments aren't going to oxidize it and make it worse. You mm-hmm. know, uh, some guys early on, some guys would do some horrific things to it. And you just have a big lump of greasy mess, you know, that would never recover too much oil. Mm. Uh, neat's foot oil's bad. Neat's foot oil's good. Neat's foot oil's not real unless, you, you know, all those arguments begin. Yeah. Uh, but really a light coat of uh, Lexol, I found is pretty good. Um, 
they use it for antique cars and the leather and uh, okay. fancy and high-end things. I, I got uh, a word from some of the guys that had, had done similar things that Lexol is, is the product to go to. Um, I've had fairly good luck with lanolins, hmm. some lanolins. Um, uh, mink oil, hit or miss. They say do, don't use it there again. But um, if I had to do something, I'd use light wipes of uh, uh, Lexol and try and get, get it displayed in a case so that there's not a lot of stress on the straps and mm -hmm. the hangings, things like that. Right. And best case scenario, make a copy and display the copy. Right. And, you know, keep the original. That's what I recommend the most. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, not everybody's satisfied with that answer. <laughs> right. No, no. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of wondered because I've encountered a few really old pouches you know, in, in recent years, especially. And I, I've always wondered about that, like what that process looks like. And, and that makes a lot of sense for a, a, a compound like Lexol to come in out of car restorations, because that's where you have, you know, at least some contemporary old leather um, that's seen some wear and tear. And it makes sense for it to kind of apply back to a, an old shop pouch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Huh. Okay. And then you get into the different eras where the, uh, if the leather was speedily tanned with some acids, the, some of the sulfuric acids and things, okay, it, it they say that the humidity will reactivate those acids, and over time, humidity will create a weak sulfuric acid oh. in the leather itself, okay. and that's where you start to get red rot. So when a guy brings a bag that's sloughing its its dermis, you know, or that smooth layer, it's it's cracking off and it's red and flaking off in your hand. That's a lost cause, more or less. You can stabilize that, look at it, and, and that's about it. But red rot is terrible. Hmm. And that that's probably from the 1850s on, you know, that era, you get that, that terrible leather. That industrialization. It's, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. And then some of the earlier leathers, I've got some what they'd call tawed or mineral tanned leathers, like a deer hide from the frontier. That stuff just gets like cardboard hard. I mean, I don't know what you can do with that hmm. um, except display it. I've got a, an original like that just in a case to look at. And uh, it's neat. It's neat to look at, but I would never try and treat that with anything. Right. But, uh, hmm. but, but yeah, it, it depends on the condition of the bag, when it was made. E each case is kind of unique and what you're willing to try and live with the results of, basically. Right. Yeah. At least for me, I'm no expert. Uh, <laughs> you, you can look up the museums, and, and they're all worried about the pH, you know, and neutralizing, and mm -hmm. all those things that are probably way over my head. But uh, um, that's kind of how I look yeah. at a lot of that stuff. Is uh, at yeah. that, I don't think I can ever have anything where I can legitimately worry about the pH of it. But if that there ever comes across, I'll find somebody smarter than me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, there's some experts, and basically, in the end, they'll they'll tell you stabilize if you can, and keep it out of sunlight, and keep it in a humid, a humidity controlled environment, like mm. a dresser drawer or something, you know, where where it's uh, safe. Right. And that's about it. Uh, my my but, my last question, real quick, on kind of this segment. Sure. It, you you talked about you had this restoration come in, and that was the first time you went through and bought a, a side of leather specifically yeah. for making bags. What were you yeah. making them out of before then, and how were you restoring any, any things? Any leather I could get given okay. or any leather I could find. You know, you hear the old purse, you know, the old boots, yeah. whatever. 
the old coat, anything you could find and use uh, that would approximate uh, a leather bag. And that was a lot of that was coming out of the buckskin era where it seemed like anything went. Right. Um, I wasn't as outrageous as uh, some of the laced up bags and stuff you see. Uh, at least I don't think I was. But, <laughs> but, you know, I was kind of frugal and I couldn't justify um, going in too, too deep at the time. Right. Uh, and I didn't know how to get too deep at the time either. Uh, but, but when Jack Vi brought me that bag, I realized it was a special occasion to, uh, to, you know, well, uh, well they say, uh, root hog or die, I guess. So, <laughs> so anyways, uh, I, I went up to a local tanny store and, and had them help me pick out a leather that would be good. And, uh, uh, just was amazed at the smell of that leather all the way home. Yeah. And, uh, it was a joy to work with. It, it was, uh, and that was a learning curve too, because some of the early uh, stains and uh, aging methods and the spirit dyes and things are pretty harsh on the leather. And I learned that the hard way. Um, the, the, there's some things that you might not want to do um, that seem like what everybody does, but mm-hmm. you, you learn the hard way that you might want to find a different thing. Some of yeah. I use I use more water-based dyes now. And, okay. Uh, and a lot less aggressive agings and uh, uh, still to get the same sort of look. A different way to apply the same chemicals, more or less, so they don't penetrate quite as deep. They just kind of sit on the surface of the leather instead of invade into the, you know, the different layers. Okay. And actually ruin it. I, I've I've turned some bags in the early days into crackers, you know, that you just, like, oh, my gosh. You put all that work into sewing it up, and then you go to age the thing back a little and you could break, basically break it. <laughs> that, that's a little overdone. Right. Yeah, that kind of trial hard. and error process. Exactly. Exactly. Learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, huh. But yeah, that was that was uh, why I bought the first the first half side. It was quite an investment. It felt like at the time. And uh, uh, before that, we just used whatever we could get a hold of. Really, uh, you could go. You could go to the store and buy um, remnant bags in like blacksmith sets. I think they call them. Uh, hard at the like Farm and Fleet would have just a big plastic bag full of leather pieces. Okay. And, and it was probably all, um, you know, like uh, not vegetable tan stuff. It wasn't wasn't anything you could really tool with, unless you got really lucky. And some of that was in the bag. Right. And I wouldn't have known the difference <laughs> at the time. I wouldn't have known the difference. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a long learning curve. Yeah. But in the end, though, with the book, I I ended up with a extra chapter, and they they were uh, they had filled the book as far as they could, and they they had all the bags. They weren't those bags weren't mostly mine. They were uh, they belonged to guys up in Minnesota, that hardcore collectors that had them. Uh huh. And they, they they took all the pictures and inserted all the old bags, and uh, they made the patterns up for it. Really, I just did the construction and the uh, the text, okay. the, the how to text, and uh, they pieced the rest together. Uh, I gave it thumbs of my thumb of approval or whatever stamp of approval, and uh, here I was with that chapter left. I thought that's a that's a shame, you know. I don't want to leave it at that. Hmm. So I had sold some tips to muzzleloader when I was a kid. 
Um, oh, really? In the late 70s, I remember I could buy a, a subscription to Muzzleloader if I sent him a tip. And <laughs> I think I think Orlin Skurlock, it, it might have been before Bill's time, they would you'd send a tip and I think they'd give you 20 bucks or 30 bucks for the tip. They'd publish it if they published it. And, uh, wow. I I'd send a tip and say, Hey, could I get a subscription instead? And I'd get the subscription. And at least one time I remember sending them a thing on how to polish, uh, uh, target practice, uh, how to roll the, the lead balls for, uh, uh oh, targets. Huh? And, uh, they, they liked that. And I got a free subscription out of it. So I knew that they could be, uh, you could approach them. They were approachable. Let's put yeah. it that way. So I have this extra chapter, and I thought, well, I'll send it to muzzleloader. I like muzzleloader, and maybe they'd be interested. And and I said, why stop there? Um, maybe they'd let me write about doing stuff, you know, because nobody's writing about that right now. And Bill said, if you could get me, you know, a few articles in advance to prove you're serious, um, yeah, they, they'd like to do something like that. And so I had the one done because it was a boot pouch, pouch article. And I hurried up and got him a couple more articles. And he said, yeah, you're on. And uh, that was 15 years ago now. And wow. Been uh, trying to, I don't think I missed an issue yet. And, of course, that led to some good things with the CLA. I got to chair um, their CLF auction committee for a while uh, as the uh, auction set up the auction for the 1812 stuff. Okay. Couldn't have, couldn't have been done without David and David Wright and Frank House and everybody that, that was involved. I just played a, a little part trying to round up the donations and, you know, keep it all running, running forward sort of. And that was a lot of fun. And it was a great time for the 1812 um, remembrance and try to keep, keep the theme for their, for the auction. Yeah. And, uh, then that that was the time of American traditions. Okay, uh, they were they were publishing that. So um, I got to put a couple articles, at least an article in there about Bowie knives, and of course they had all the connections, uh, so they could introduce me to Bill Myers and Joe Musso and you know different guys that I could call on to help with the article. Right. You know, give some pictures, and it was one good thing led to another, which led to another, and so. You can't beat that. I mean, I've been blessed as far as that goes. Stumble bum, and here I am, <laughs> people looking at my stuff, and, and I get to be involved in stuff I never thought I could. Right. It's it's really fascinating to me seeing and or hearing about here, you know, being a farm boy, trapping the creeks with your with your muzzleloader, not knowing it was, it was all it was out fun. there. Yeah, it was fun, uh, and it was based on Janice Holt Giles' books. Yeah. Uh, that book, The Great Adventure, was it had it all in a nutshell, you know. And then, of course, that led to the, uh, uh, the other books like The Mountain Man, yeah, yeah, uh, and Vardis Fisher, and uh, uh, some of the other books, uh, Give Your Heart to the Hawks by Winford Blevins. I was blown away one time. Uh, the Winford Blevins article or uh, ad that had that book still <laughs> being in print was was on one of the pages for an article that I had in muzzleloader. And I thought, my goodness, how can that be? How can that be? You know, these things, it's like you're living in a different reality or something for coincidences. Right. Like the, even the Tony Bridges thing, the book that influenced me from my cousin that got me started, 
that was edited by Tony Bridges. It turns out one of my best friends, uh, Tony Bridges was his neighbor. Really? One here in Illinois. And I mean, how does that even happen? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, you know, but it's a but small it world. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's about it. That's about it. But yeah, I learned just enough in those books to, to think that you should be able to throw a diamond hitch on a pony and let him carry your traps for you while you're, while you're running the creeks, you know? Right. And so I, I, there was books you could read where they had illustrations about prospecting or different things. And uh, so I would throw an approximation of a diamond hitch on a pony and let him carry my traps down to the Creek for me. <laughs> and uh, it, it was fun. I don't know if I did it right or wrong, but, I was the only one doing it. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> At least well, in our area. And you stuck with it too. So I'd say you did it right because you just, you just, you're still into it. Yeah. I was too, too scotch and bullheaded to give up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> At least so far we're still at it. We're still wow. at it. And it, it's been nothing but good things really. Um, uh, the day job is always, uh, you got to have that, or at least I've had to have that. I've never yeah. felt confident enough to, to try it without that. That's a, I'm in that same boat, and I know a lot of the people that I I talk to and hear from are are in that same boat too. You know, there's that kind of that dream to go back to being a kid running through the creeks and <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, doing that. But it's it's hard to get there. Yeah, but but you can still do stuff. Yeah, and, uh, you, you should. I think that's I really believe in the doing it yourself. And and uh, for 15 years, you know, every every article I come up with something different that a guy can do for himself. Um, and, you know, I, I'm always amazed that somebody wants to buy one of my bags when basically I write about doing it yourself. It's um, <laughs> fine. You know, I don't mind that. But, right. but people can do a lot more than they they think they can. Um, and they can learn to do it in, in a correct manner. Um, you can learn from the old stuff or somebody that has learned from the old stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can be a part of it, too. Anytime, you know, anybody could. If one human did it, I believe another can maybe not as well some people are truly gifted and uh, i'm not one but um i'm more than happy to try you know give it a try except for the new stuff like the new cars and things that i gave up on that a long time ago (laughs) that's over my head (laughs) the new cars now are going to be the car i can afford in i think 10 or so years maybe (laughs) and boy it's like a it's like a spaceship now i there you go i I might be hitching up a pony like you're talking about (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, 
book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. But it's not all roses. Um, You eat some crow. One thing, you learn from an old bag. Yeah. and not everybody wants to hear what you think you learned. Um, for instance, the old bags, the straps, they went a lot of most, not all, but it seemed like a lot of straps were stitched into the top seam of the bag. The flap was sewn right to the back, you know, a two piece, you have a back and you have a separate flap and they're, they're joined across the top with a seam. Okay. And into the, into that seam, the strap is inserted. And, uh, I thought, you know, you're you're copying the original like Roy Underhill do. You mm-hmm. gotta copy it the way he did it. Yeah. And then then I was rebuffed more or less. You know, you just built a weak point into that bag, you put a zipper in there and uh, it's gonna tear and all that. And you know, I thought, well, they did it that way for a reason. I mean, the old German guys in the Pennsylvania Dutch or whoever made that that bag and uh they did it that way because somebody told them to do it that way and they were taught to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out at a show, at a CLA show, Mark Silver brought me a Lou Sanchez bag that the strap had tore exactly across the top of the seam. And Mark said, take this home, see if you can fix it. It's important to me. And then send it back to me. I had a few tools with me. And I think within less than a half an hour, I gave him the bag back. Because if you sew a bag with the strap caught in, the, in that seam, mm-hmm. when the strap fails, and the strap is going to fail, when it fails... All you got to do is open that little bit of a seam, insert uh, less than a half an inch of that strap, and restitch it. That's all there is to it. Ah. If you stitch to the back of the bag and it fails, it could tear the whole back of the bag. I've seen more bags held with rivets and bailing wire and everything they could to try and get it to stick to the back panel, which is pretty fragile at that point. Um, but if, if it's joined at the top, you can tell you'll find a bag without a strap. Right. And the bag, the old bag looks pretty good. What happened to the strap? Well, the strap failed and nobody, it's going to fail. It seems like straps are going to fail. They get wet on your shoulder. Yeah. All the salts and enzymes and everything runs down. Uh, I don't know why it is, but I know that it is. So huh. I still think that learning from the old stuff, there's lessons to be taught rather than just assuming you're building a zipper into the thing and then penalizing for it. That's just a, something, an observation I've, I've right. made. No, no, and I, I appreciate that because I've been, I've been dabbling in <laughs> kind of the, the doing it yourself, you know, like like you're right about and, and playing with some of this stuff. And 
you know, I'm fortunate to have some opportunities to see some original old stuff. And I, tr I try to apply that. And I'm always interested in those interpretations from the old stuff. I mean, yeah, I put my foot in my mouth quite a few times, uh, you know, where well, I'll, have, I'll have a question. And then, you know, the first comment is, is, oh, that makes sense as, as the answer to it, you know. Um, but I think that's part of the fun in all of this is, oh, is to sure go through and discuss that and try to figure that out because it's kind of a puzzle when we're looking at a lot of this old stuff. Uh, it's harder and harder to, to know what was meant or, or what was intended by that because we're just starting to get to a point where we're so far removed from, you know, that, True. that culture. It's, it's hard to find that. So I, I'm, I really appreciate that because I've kind of wondered that myself and um, yeah, the, the strap is, is the weak point of that bag and just about yeah, it's it's going to fail. I huh. think it's going to fail eventually. I mean, you can use thicker. You can make the bag out of three or four ounce and the strap out of five or six ounce and prolong it. Yeah. You can use rings, you know, but that that's contentious. About everything a guy do, some, there's a way to be contentious about it somewhere down the line. <laughs> yeah. One, but if you're, I think if you're copying the old work, maybe not carbon copying it, but at least incorporating the old techniques. Yeah. Um, you, at least you got a defensible position, more or less. Um, uh, I'm not too great at making the, some of the art bags like a lot of those guys are and stuff, but I don't mind making a, a nice copy of a bag. And some of those bags, another another point, I had always heard a bag is never laced. A bag is never laced. You know, the old guys never laced up a bag that's buckskin or stuff. Well, a guy uh, brought a banded horn to a gun show. And he brought in the bag, a paper bag, a bag that he'd saved from a burn pile. And it turns out it was like the uh, McGlemory bag that's in Jim Webb's book, the one with all the fringe on the uh -huh. face. Yeah. And uh, he said, I got the horn. Can you make me a bag to go with it that was like this bag that went with it? <sighs> and I, re I recognized it as being similar to the McGlemory bag. And uh, I got to take it home and study it. And every bit of that thing was laced. Huh. It was all the fringe strips, the, the strips were sewn across the face with lacing. And uh, they were all individually cut. And then the seams of the bag were laced. Then I started looking through the Madison Grant bag, and or book on the bags. And across the face of some of those flaps, you can see lacing. Hmm. As, if they, as if they had extended the flap, make a beaver tail or something out of it, with some, some uh, lacing. And I thought, well, they never laced bags except for they did, you know. Yeah. Uh, so huh. I made copies. I made copies of the the McGlenry bag or the the bag that the fella had had me to copy, and uh, tried to. Pub, I think I maybe put it out on Art and Jan's site. That's another wonderful yeah. resource we've had at our at our disposal. And thanks thanks for that for them. But uh, I called it the bearded bag and the name kind of stuck, I think. And uh, now more people are making them. I'm glad to see it. And uh, it's easier to sew them. Definitely lacing them up is, is, is a pain, but that, that helped me when I got pictures. I, I wrote a man about the Daniel Boone bag. There's pictures of a Boone bag that was for sale on eBay at one point, And he wanted a quarter of a million dollars, I think for it. And, uh, <laughs> I wanted to do something along those lines. I've been studying in, I've been feeling Daniel Boone, you know, when I make horns in the past and I thought, well, all I've got is this one picture off of eBay. 
I wonder if the family sent me more pictures and, and uh, maybe I could even go see it and make a copy. Right. So I, I contacted the family and it was a terrible story. Uh, <laughs> the bag had been stolen and they didn't know where it was. They did have some pictures. The, the family sent me some extra pictures. And uh, I wrote a little bit about it f- uh, for the Boone Society to try and get some publicity out there because it'll resurface someday. Yes, it's and got to I someday. Thought, I thought if we document it, that uh, when it does resurface, people know where it belongs and who it should go back to at least. Um, but studying the pictures, they were 35 millimeter, you know, regular old time photos. I could see puckers on the seam of that bag where there shouldn't be puckers. And I could see a tear on that flap where it looked like that beaver tail had been once sewn. And then they had a back, a picture of the back of the bag. And I could see plainly where the, the sheath on the back of the pouch was uh, laced on. Huh. So I did, those puckers, you don't get puckers like that unless you're lacing that bag together. Right. So I'm thinking, did Daniel or who, whoever, the bag supposedly was one Daniel used up on the Big Sandy and traded to this family uh, before he left for Missouri, and they had kept it ever since. Um, and the genealogy, there was nothing wrong with their their family tree, basically, that that made that story false, you know. Right. It, it, it all checked up. out. Yeah, huh. yeah, sure enough. So I thought, well, here's a bag that maybe Boone made that's laced. And uh, so I made a copy, you know, and I uh, got the same puckers and, and things. So for what it's worth, I mean, that and a couple of co- or a quarter, buy me a cup of coffee, maybe. Not, <laughs> but uh, so you can lace a bag, you know, if you're making the right sort of bag. Um, yeah. Th- there's examples that a guy can go buy. And uh, so the straps, the laces, uh, there's no hard and fast rules, it seems. Uh, if you look, you can find anomalies all this stuff more or less yeah there's a a great variety too and you know i i struggle because i'm interested in a wide swath of time on a lot of this stuff and i I just i'm like narrowed down to a specific decade like some folks out there do and i commend that for the level of detail they can put into that and that research and things but um, i think when you open up and you start looking at you know, maybe a hundred years, you know, 1750 to 1850, we'll say there's a whole lot of stuff happening there and there, there's oh, enough stuff to keep you occupied all day. <laughs> goodness. And here I thought, honestly, I thought you'd have to go to uh, Kentucky or Tennessee or Montana, you know, to find any history. And basically growing up in this area, that's what we were taught in history, that there is no history here. Right. <laughs> yeah. But as it turns out right now, we live on land that uh, was owned by a, uh, a man named Clark, who was instrumental in digging the I&M Canal, uh, set up this town Utica, mined Portland cement, uh, was famous enough to the extent that Francis Parkman came to Utica to try and find a starved rock in LaSalle's old fort, St. Louis. Huh. And when Parkman came, he stayed with the man that owned the land that, that we, the little place that we live on. And, uh, Parkman described this land as part of the Indian burial grounds from Levantum that was the uh, big Kaskaskia site that, that was around Starve Rock. Wow. And that was, that was 1680. So for no history, right. I mean, 1680, the history started here with the French and, uh, and then the Beaver Wars. This was central oh, yeah. to the Beaver Wars. And then even uh, uh, Gurdon S. Hubbard uh when he worked for the American Fur Company, 
he came right down the Illinois River with voyagers and canoes uh, picking up the furs from all the little trading posts up and down the creeks and rivers here on the way to St. Louis. Hmm. And uh, so for no history, yeah. I mean, this is where Blackhawk was, where the uh, uh, massacres were. Nathan Boone was within five miles of the house here uh, during the War of 1812 when they came up on their scouts. Hmm. Um, who knows what history, but, but I was amazed and kind of angry that most people here don't know a thing about it. Yeah. They're not, they're not likely to find it out, but I, I didn't really have to move anywhere to, <laughs> to find it. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't necessarily think of, you know, we think of Illinois being pretty far West for the 18th century, but there's activity there. Oh, tons. Um, and tons. Hmm. So do you think that's part of, what kept you and or drew you to kind of the muzzleloading? I mean, you, you said as a, you didn't really find this out as a kid, but do you think that kind of kept you coming back as you learned that as, a, yeah, as an adult? Yeah. Um, I, I actually uh, was pretty interested in music through the service, although I did have a CBA uh, Hawking kit in my locker. Uh, I was trying to build it uh, through the Marine Corps. Um, didn't get very far. But oh. <laughs> I, was more, I was more interested in playing music. You know, that that was okay. a better panacea at the time. And I actually met my wife when I went to give her uh, brother guitar lessons. And I was pretty serious about that. But finding the history here, finding that the, there was still rendezvous going on. There was still uh, centennial-type celebrations for the little towns and things. And the... Uh, it drew me right back. Uh, and then the more history I learned, the, the more I wanted to be to learn more. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And then the more you learn, the more you want to do, uh, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, try to do. And uh, it, yeah, it, it kept me really involved. Learning that there was history here yeah. kept me here and wanting to learn more. I, I can't let you slip by without talking a little bit about trying to build the CVA Hawken while in the Marines. Yeah, it was missing parts. That was it was on sale in the PX. It was okay. really cheap, and I, I even though I had built uh, that numeric kit mm -hmm. and a couple of CBA pistol kits in uh, junior high and in high school, um, I thought you know this is too good. And I was always jealous of a friend who at Kmart during the Blue Light Special bought a Thompson Center kit. Ah. And, uh, I didn't buy it. I bought, uh, I forget what I bought, a Bowie knife kit or something stupid. But uh, <laughs> he bought the good thing. And I was always so jealous of that, that when I saw this CVA kit that kind of looked like the Thompson Center at the time, I had to have it. Right. And I kept it in my locker or out in, out in the trunk of my car if there was going to be an inspection. And I thought I could you know, put it together. And I don't know what I thought, just that I had it. Yeah. But it was missing the under rib. It was missing a couple of pipes. It was... I ended up making it, I made it the year I got out of the service, finished it, and uh, uh, made a wooden under rib, you know, kind of cobbled it together. And it's a, it was a good rifle. It was a good rifle. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I bought it in the service and kind of hid it away because I don't know if you're supposed to have it or not in your locker. <laughs> that was uh, between 79 and 83, so... Uh, Ronald Reagan, he probably would have understood, I guess. Yeah, I think he could. You could have called him up, I think, and he yeah. he would have allowed it. It would have been all right. Yeah, I like to think that. You know, you say what you want about Reagan, but I think he would have, would have liked muzzleloaders. Probably. <laughs> and, uh, that was uh, once I got out of the service. Uh, I went back to working at Grain Elevators. Uh, worked for Cargill for a while. Actually, butchered for a while up at uh, Dubuque. Um, anything to make end meets in 83, it was a pretty good recession, as I recall. Yeah. 
but I was able to buy a, uh, even though it was Japanese at the time, uh, Dixie squirrel rifle, or the, they called it their mountain rifle, oh. which they, they had just switched to Japan from Belgian, Belgium, I believe. And you got the Mikuru barrels and the, the Japanese steel. And it was really good, good rifle. That was the next one I, I bought and built and I added the banana patch box. You know, I was trying to go. And I also added uh, Pennsylvania style carving, which, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew everything I liked and thought right. it should all be gun yeah <laughs> it didn't turn out too terrible you know but do you still it, have that yeah yeah i don't i have never really sold any of the muzzleloaders yeah i still got the first one still got the buggy rifle oh, uh, i would love to see pictures sometime oh, if you could i would we, i just yeah, love that we stuff make, we can make it happen that buggy rifle was terrible though um i've heard that <laughs> about those <laughs> They were accurate, but that cap, I, for years, you could see shrapnel in my wrist, but that cap would just unmercifully, if you weren't, if you didn't have a long sleeve and we didn't always in the summer, right. um, it would spit that cap uh, shards down into your forearm or, or down into your wrist, you know, and uh, it'd draw blood sometimes. Huh. But yeah, I still got it. Uh, I put a Schutzen style butt plate on it. I had to do that. Okay. Um, I don't know why somebody souped one up. I think I saw maybe an early Brent Gertek souped up version, and uh, so I had to try and soup this one up. And uh, so, it, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to send you pictures if you don't laugh too hard. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I love, I love that era of muzzleloading, and I love seeing how people made it work. And, and hearing that you took the the Dixie Squirrel rifle and just added everything that you wanted it to be into it, I think is just so extremely special. Like, the, I, I, I'm not, I'm not buttering you up here or anything, no, but there's, no. <laughs> there's, there's a level of this that I love about the history and the accuracy of it and, and trying to understand what our ancestors went through and, and what it took to do, to get us here to where we're at today. Oh, you know it. But then there's also a level of me where my grandfathers were in that period and just trying to figure it out. And trying to go have yeah. fun with their buddies, and there's a there's a level of specialness to that that I you know, hold the high esteem. <laughs> I, I if for old tools, I love tools that have been hand forged out of other tools. You yeah. know, old things. A guy needed a farrier's knife or something, you know, for a hoof work, mm -hmm. and so he just made it out of a whatever old tool he could, a file or a, an old wrench or whatever. And you can see what it used to be. You can see what it was turned into and you can see the, the man's tool marks that did it. Yes. Any, any tool like that, boy, I, I just have to put it in the collection Yeah. Uh, and just look at it. Um, you can find them. Uh, you can find it in the gun stuff too. I've got a few, uh, the shotgun, uh, bag, uh, it's used for measuring out shot. It's like the English charger or the oh, Irish yeah. charger. Mm -hmm. I've got a, I've got one with an English charger, the lever, where the spring broke. But that didn't stop them from using it. They cut a piece of a rubber ball and they wrapped <laughs> it on with thread so that the rubber ball made up a spring. Right. So they still carry it in the field. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know, that, that must have been pretty late, you know, 1900s or something. Right. And, and they're still using I've, it. I've got an old gun to match. They did everything they could to keep this thing running. When the when the thimbles fell off, they put some leather on it. You know, the uh, I've got another gun that's had a lock plate, kind of brazed over the old lock plate to to 
keep the thing going. You know, it's, it's, uh, what they did is not always what we'd expect to <laughs> right. be done today. <laughs> but it's neat when you find an example of it. Yeah. And, that, uh, and, human ingenuity can make a work of art or it can make something functional, you know, <laughs> kind of two sides of the coin. It? Yeah. That one little rifle that was, uh, kind of cobbled together to keep it running, no matter what it took to keep it running. Um, People look at that, and once they get past all the uh, ingenuity that's been used on the thing, they go, you know, that's a really nice hand-forged swamp barrel on that thing. Right. And, you know, it is. How long did that rifle keep going? You know, <laughs> it's pretty pretty neat. So uh, can I ask how, a little bit more detail about that piece? Where would you find it, and, and well, where do you think it came from? My wife is always helping uh to find me stuff that's wonderful whenever she, whenever she sees something that she thinks i'd like she'll let me know and she saw a guy was selling some some guns in a town about 30 miles north of us and uh i said yeah i'd like to take a look enough we went and took a look and there it lay and uh i just bought it and uh, that that's as simple as it was wow and that you, you don't really study it when you're buying it you know but when you get it home you study it for days yeah and all those little things jumped out and uh, take it to a few shows, you know, get a few opinions and then just lock it in the closet for, for a while. Yeah. So the next guy gets to take care of it. <laughs> That's about all we are as curators. Yeah. You, you know? know, you're just, you're passing it from one generation to the next, you know, that's it. And that's and that's it. the, uh, that's what's important about it for sure. And I, sometimes you learn things that you don't really want to learn or, or you learn not to, uh, be taken in by everything you hear, like the old uh, uh, Russell knives, you know, the six pin knives and all that. Okay. Uh, the, the, oh, the Buckskinner's boy, you got one of them, and that was, you know, you'd have to pay real money to get one from them, let's put it that way. Hmm. And uh, then I found an old Spencer Hibbard Bartlett catalog from 1935 or so. Well, there they were. <laughs> Six pin Green River knives with the stamp, you know, for sale right then in 1935. So, right. so no wonder we're finding them coming out of uh, garage sales on the farms around here. They're coming out of kitchens, not out of trappers camps. Right. And, but, you know, it's still neat, but it takes some of the mystique out of it. But you kind of rather have the truth, you know. Right. And, th and then now again, you'll find a real treasure because we're close enough to St. Louis and some of the frontier that that uh, you, you do find a real treasure now and again. Uh, mm. But yeah, and it, usually it just pops out of the woodwork. Yeah, and and uh, you got to be smart enough to buy it when you see it, which I'm not always. You know, <laughs> I don't think any of us are. Oh, <laughs> uh, there was there was a flea market with a Manton side by side, oh. uh, and the guy, it, it was in sad shape, missing a hammer, broken springs, blah mm -hmm. blah blah, and he it was in a barrel and with the other guns, and uh, he lifted it out, and they were making fun of it because. Uh, the stock was bent. It warped, and they were laughing. Oh. And uh, I passed it up. And when I finally, I was praying that it'd be at the next show. It was a monthly show. The same guy show up every time. Okay. And they put me right in my place when I asked about it. They go, you know, I think I just sold that an hour ago. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, why didn't I buy it when I saw it? You right. Know? Yeah. By the time I figured out what it was, and that, yeah, I probably should buy that. It was too late. And that ain't the, the only one that I've done that to. So <laughs> that'd be some advice if there is anything there. Oh, geez. When you see it, buy it. Right. That's yeah. That's, that's something I'm, I'm kind of learning is yeah, I try to, you know, I, I'm, I'm working and I've got a, a, a young family here, but 
you know, sometimes something comes up that is just is really special to you. And oh yeah, you know, yeah. pinch pinch a few pennies to to make that happen. You know, it's if yeah. not, you're just holding on to it, you know, until you're in the yeah. dirt. But and you, you can probably get the money back, and and you can learn from it. That's the best thing because you learn. You learn how funny it sounds for somebody to think it's warped or bent when you know it was cast on or cast off. And right, yeah. That kind of thing is the mark of quality, not inferiority. And uh, and that the experts or the so-called experts that have the table that's selling it, they might not know everything you assume they know. You might be able and, to get a good deal on it. <laughs> well, not only that, but you, you recognize a thing for what it is and, and, and are able to appreciate and, and maybe value it for the, the way it should be. You right. Know, say, uh, we learned that, believe it or not, we kind of learned that early on in uh, in a sort of a sidebar field. It could have gone this way for me. We we were really into artifacts, collecting you know surface hunting arrowheads, uh-huh, yeah, and, and trying to trying to make sense of what we were finding, where we were finding it, to the point that uh, uh, soil survey came out for our surrounding counties and we bought those soil surveys as soon as they were available and we over, <laughs> we overlaid it with plat maps where we knew we were repeatedly finding similar types of points oh. and uh, so we we were able this guy had a vast enough collection that that we were able to say okay for the paleolithic period where were you finding you know paleolithic you know clovis or microchips or or and then he could remember that when they tiled through here they found some mammoth bones and oh my gosh! We were able to identify kettle moraine type uh, soils, and and predominantly that's where they were killing the mastodons, or where mastodons have been found, or he's finding the the early Paleolithic stuff. And we could kind of overlay that with the hardened barbs and the early archaics, and the woodlands not so much around here, but the archaic and the and the uh, uh, some of the early woodlands we'd find. Um, but we were able to start to make sense of this. To the point where we wrote the university about, of all things, bolo stones. Because hmm. we were studying, you know, Bushmen. You know, they were the last hunters that, that you could kind of equate to. So they were writing about them and they were living subsistence, subsistence uh, hunting lifestyles. Right. We thought, well, that's kind of like the guys might have been living around here. And they were only successful maybe one out of every five or six times they tried to take game. So the the state was saying that bolo stones were like they use down in South America. You tie them together in threes and you wing them out at a, at a duck. And we're thinking if you're going to throw 18 of those stones to get one duck, and as elaborate <laughs> as those stones are made, there's something wrong with that theory. Right. That's and a so lot of work had, to throw it. Exactly. So we asked about that, and boy, were we put in our place. And it didn't change our mind, but we realized that we weren't going to get a lot of help from the experts on some of these things um huh. right down right down to the way a hardened barb or, or any of those early points they just get narrower and you sharpen it and it gets narrower and the base stays the same but they get narrower and narrower and we could we could go through floyd's collection basically and lay out a pristine you know unsharpened point all the way down to a point that was you know, maybe a quarter inch long, you know, fluted, angled yeah. on either side, which they said was so it would spin through the air. The, the experts that we talked to it imparted spiral for accuracy. And uh, we're like, wait a minute. The, to us, this implies that this thing was permanently hafted on like a knife handle, maybe. Hmm. And then it was sharpened by the guy from 
one side, then he'd flip it over and he'd sharpen it on the other side. It wasn't for, it was the way he sharpened the thing right. and it was on handle. It was not a drill point. It was not an all point. It was a knife that the guy sharpened and sharpened huh. and, and using that same theory, we, we thought, you know, maybe these points were mounted permanently on a short haft and they were shot from darts out of the atlatl or the, maybe this, the shaft actually bounced off and you could use a shaft over and over again and just keep putting these little handled darts into these shafts. And that was huh. 40 years ago. And now it's kind of accepted theory. Uh, and we just got it from looking at the stuff and taking a stupid farmer guess at how it might have worked. <laughs> and, uh, but we we were seriously into that. Right. And, uh, and I, I still sort of think the same way. You know, you come up with a good idea about why things might work the way they are. Well, you, you might be right. <laughs> so, yeah. There's uh, that, uh, you know, it gets kind of ethereal i think or however you want to talk about it but you know you you joke about it being a dumb farmer theory but you're out there you know as a farmer and and, you know working on an orchard or in your gardens or something and you're working with your hands and and you're making stuff and figuring this stuff out and to me it makes sense that you can look at and study those things and and think about how it was used and, and how it may have been used. I mean, cause you're all, you know, you're still kind of shooting in the dark, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me for people that work with their hands and, and, you know, can kind of study that from that angle can get to that point, not to knock any of the historians out there no, or anything. But everybody should be able to contribute what they think they know, yeah. or, you know, or learn, keep learning. And there's and a, there's a, I think I've talked about it before. To me, there's kind of that connection you know, to the, from the person that was making it to you studying it, there's a connection there and you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're touching that and holding that. And when you're talking about having this collection of these, these points and these stones that have been worked laid out, I mean, wow, that just sounds incredible. I mean, every year when they, oh, when they start yeah. disking the fields around here, we're out there, you know, seeing yeah. what we can find. <laughs> we had a bog site that kept turning up stone axes, axe heads. I mean, not one, not two, maybe six, seven, eight. And it kept, they kept turning up wow. and we got, we got three of them broken in half, three of them broken in half, same way. And uh, then we found one of the broken halves and we're like, how can this happen? What was going on at this bog site? And we think they were actually using those to work wood to such an extent, like using it the back end as a mall that they actually just cracked them. You know, they hit something hard enough right. and they just cracked the thing right down the middle. And uh, it was pretty neat to have a bunch, from the same side, a bunch of, you know, axes broken in half, you right. know, long way, long ways. They could still use them. Uh, <laughs> it, it was pretty neat. And, and one thing leads to another. It wasn't useless information, you know, to learn all that. Right. We were at a at a breakfast before a gun show there in Princeton, and they, they were talking about arrowheads. And of course, I for whatever reason I felt brave enough to pipe up something, and uh, pretty much what I was just saying to you, you know, the early archaic using all the big terms or whatever I thought I knew, and Jimmy Dressler was like, "Hey, you know your stuff," and that was kind of my introduction to him, and his it broke the ice yeah. for him to uh, want to talk to me, which you know I thought that was pretty neat. Um, uh, that even guys like that were still interested in this stuff, you know, at that level. Yeah. And was, I thought that was pretty cool. Huh. Uh, I think that's little... something neat. You know, it's, you know, we might 
focus on a particular era, but there's still that, uh, you know, that through line, you know, wanting to learn about how other things, how older things were done. And Oh, sure. Endless curiosity. Yeah. Endless curiosity. It's, it's either in your blood or it's not. seems like some folks maybe aren't so interested in different things and they're happy that way, but I, I don't think I could be. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got lifelong friends that aren't really interested in this stuff at all, but boy, for me, I, I can't imagine not, not wanting to talk about it and learn about it. It's just, I'll bought it. just too and, neat. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it may run in the family. I had a, a ancestor that he came from Scotland. He got clearanced out in the 1850s. They just rounded up everybody in Ross here. The women and children threw him on a boat and said, you know, bon voyage. Jeez. He ended up here. He fought in the Civil War and uh, promptly became, when the opportunity arose, uh, tattooed men in Pawnee Bill's Wild West Hill. So <laughs> it was like, there you go, Grandpa. Wow. <laughs> so, so you wonder how much of that that gene is in your, you know, what he must have been interested in what was over the next hill and, yeah. and learning different things. You wonder, you wonder what... Um, what you got from people like that and you want to learn about people like that and 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 it opens up horizons that you you never think that that you could be interested in everything from you know the what the west to the scottish stuff to the the circuses that you know you name it, it yeah you could be interested in anything at any point you know if you let yourself huh. but that also leads to the uh, jack of all trades master of none phenomenon which um I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, but uh, it, it's what I am, I'm sure. Um, I don't have enough focus to really focus on <laughs> too much or too long. No, I, I'm in kind of the same boat as I, I kind of, things kind of come in waves for me. I'll get really interested in one thing and knock out a few things, and then I kind of let it set for a year and, or a couple of years or five years, and, you know, yeah, kind of sits on the edge of the bench and, you know, I'll go down to the shop one day and be like, huh, you know. I've got an idea on that. And uh, there's, you know, until I can see a project from start to finish and how it's supposed to look until I can see that in my head, I won't start it. Um, I'll just ruin it. If I do, if I try to force it and I don't have a vision to go with it, uh it's going to be garbage. I already know that. So if if it takes years, I'll wait years. Right. You know, that's fine. I've ruined enough stuff that I know better than to, to start it unless I can see it finished. But what that leads to is I'm always buying raw materials for things I think I see. Ah. So I, I've got sheds full of junk. I mean, my daughter is going <laughs> to much stuff she's not going to know what to do with. It's unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, there's a lifetime worth of uh, projects out there. If somebody can see anything in the stuff that's out there, because it might just be a stick of wood. You know, it might be an old wagon spoke. Mm-hmm. It, it, it might be a, Somebody shut forged a, a old hinge, you know, like a strap hinge. Yeah. Uh, and the eye was perfect on that thing to make it. And just with a little hammering on the forge, it made a beautiful spontoon hawk, you know. <sighs> and and how you see that in a, a pile of junk underneath a table at a sale, I don't know. But when I saw it, that's what I saw. And that's what it was, you know. It and calls to you. Yeah, and there's all kinds of stuff that has called to me that's sitting in boxes now in my shed (laughs) 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 that I hope somebody can see the same sort of thing in it someday because I'll probably never get it all done. Yeah, it's it's hard to get it all done, that's for sure. um... And it's it's even harder to get rid of it. 
you know. Right, yeah, because the, the potential's be, right there. <laughs> it's my fault it's not turned into something, you know. Yeah. I should have been more diligent. But, uh, yeah, either way, either way, it's out there. Huh. Uh, but, yeah, I could never go to a sale again and have enough to do for the rest of my life, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's good. You know, I'm going to enable you here a little bit and say that that's oh, good. good and, and I encourage the, anybody listening to do the same because, yeah. you know, you can you can scroll on your phone, or you can play some games or you can go collect some junk and turn it into something. There you go. And that's that's <laughs> what I'm a, a lobbying for. <laughs> If you ever need a special piece of junk, give me a call because I might have it. Okay. It'd be important to have you send it your way. I'm going to add you to my junk network that I'm building. Good on. deal. <laughs> Good deal. I appreciate that. Oh, shoot. Have, my daughter appreciates it more than more than you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'll say I felt that way uh, when I was younger about my folks. Um, I remember... One of the earliest road trips I remember, it's, it's deviating a little bit from, from our conversation here, but uh, nope. yeah. uh, I grew up as a, a Roy Underhill house and every oh. week on PBS when he would come on, we would all sit down or, or my parents would at least sit down and I'd be right there watching Roy Underhill. And Way to uh, go. one, one weekend, I, I can't remember how old I was, uh, you know, probably six or seven. Uh, I think my sister was real young and this would have been in the late nineties. Um, showing my age there a little bit, but we, my folks loaded us up in the car and we drove for what felt like forever at that age into Ohio, which you can drive forever into Ohio and not go anywhere. But, and we met Roy Underhill that day. Oh my goodness. And it was just, I always remember that. And it was just, it was just delightful. And (laughs) and so every, and you know, you kind of grow up a little bit and you know, I, I've, you know, goofed on my, my folks a little bit, you know, for, you know, for some of the quote junk, you know, out in the shop or in the sheds and things. But now I'm every, any weekend that I have, I have free from work, I can go out and make or, or tinker with just about anything I want and, and play with that, you know, and try to Way make to something. Go. And that's it, wonderful. And it, that, that's disappearing. That opportunity's disappearing. Yeah. The, the antiques at the sales are not what they used to be. No, um, you can't, you can't, I've, I've, feel sad for a guy that wanted to build up a collection of, uh, you know, hand woodworking tools or even the hand leather tools or anything. It's going to cost you yeah. and you're going to search far and wide. Just the stuff that you used to be, you'd leave stuff laying the tables cause you already bought too much, you know? Right. Yeah. But, I mean, we, coming away yeah. with buckets, you know, five gallon buckets yep. as a kid, I remember dad buying of, of tools and yep. things, you know, yeah. it's, it's not that way anymore. It's, it's hard yeah. to, and it, it goes for muzzle loading too. You know, it's, uh, you know, things are, things are just different, but I think if the passion's there, um, there are people out there that are going to help you get along That's with that. True. That's true. And, uh, you know, you'd rather, you'd rather do it while you have the chance and regret you didn't or find out that you should have. Um, like when I was stationed in Carolina, nothing stopped me from going to Chapel Hill and, you know, knocking on Roy's shop, you know, but I didn't, right. and nothing stopped me from going to the mountains and, uh, you know, looking for face jugs and the old pottery and things. Um, but I didn't, you know, I was, uh, I just didn't know enough to, I guess, but and now, uh, oh, well, now I know and the opportunity's not there. Well, so now there's somebody listening that's going to hear that and, and put that to his heart or her heart Good. and go out and do it, you know, but they need to do it. Yep. They need to do it. That's for sure. Strike when that's hot, I think they used to say. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's an old saying, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that kind of segues into 
you know, some of the last few questions I have for you here, Sure. Uh, you know, a little bit on, on what tips you would have for an aspiring craftsman and, and some books or resources that you would point somebody to. Anything that um, inspires you to go down that path that you, that you want to go down. Um, the Alan Eckert books were real inspirational and keeping me inspired, you know, learning about uh, Simon Kenton and, you know, all that history. Yeah. Uh, that, that kept the spark alive. Uh, any of the mountain man books, um, the early stuff, and I'm not aware of any of the new stuff, but the early stuff was kind of pure, kind of clean. You know, it, it wasn't, it was good stuff. You wouldn't mind your, your, your kids reading it or whatever. And I, I liked it and it was inspirational. It kept my spark alive. Uh, if you're interested in the, the traditional woodworking and stuff, you, there's probably more, but Roy Underhill has a whole bunch of books about that. And now, the books that are available for guys interested in the muzzleloading and accoutrements, the, some of the stuff put out by the KRA, uh, some of the publications like Jason, the muzzleloader, um, we got the best resources available now. Um, you can, you can do it online. A lot of times you can find more stuff online with just simple searches. Mm -hmm. And if you can, if you can buy the books, you, you won't go wrong buying a, a nice, um, hardcover edition when they first come out because I've learned the hard way that once those are out of print, they're yeah. going to cost a lot of money. You better buy it when you see it uh, or be prepared to pay, you know, five, $600 sometimes for the same thing. Yeah. Really it's, it's, it can be a little hard to swallow. Um, you know, especially if you're young, a, a book that's, you know, 80, 90, a hundred dollars. Yeah, but, but boy, in ten years, if that book's not been reprinted and you want to go and get it, you're gonna you're gonna pay. <laughs> yeah, you know it. You know it. That I learned that the hard way with yeah. Mark Baker's book when that Sons of the Trackless Forest came out. Oh my goodness! I was, yeah, I was really interested, and in, in, uh, Bonnie and Heather uh, bought me a copy for Father's Day, I think, and I was so happy, you know, and I kept it pristine. And then next thing you know, they're five, six, seven hundred dollars. You know, whether or not people are really paying that or they're just asking it, I don't know. Then you see the same thing with the uh, Moravian gun making books and yeah. the, the Flaterman book on Bowie knives and any of the early stuff. It's just, you know, it would have been better to buy them when they were in the under $100 range. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, like everything, it, that advice may, may not be true tomorrow. But, right. but those kind of resources are available to keep a spark going. If you want to make knives, if you want to make Bowie knives, now's the time, you know, because. Uh, there's more out there, more better makers, more information known, uh, more more stuff uh, available to study and keep that spark. At least for me, if I'm not studying and reading about it and thinking about it, it's hard to keep that focus going. Hmm. So a library for me is essential. Yeah, you got you got to have a library of stuff and access to it, and then the raw materials. Keep your raw materials. You know, look look for something in something, you know, look, look to make something out of junk if you can, or if you want to buy the parts and everything, you know, everything is available now. Well, I shouldn't say that because of COVID. Um, mm, it's kind of yeah. hard to get parts right now. Um, yeah. I just went through a bunch of hoops just rounding up a set of Hawking parts and, uh, but maybe that'll change. And, and the parts that are available now are, better than ever i mean some of the best stuff available i'd say yeah uh, so yeah uh just whatever it takes to keep inspired and and keep keep that dream going 
for mm-hmm. sure. For sure. And keep your family in mind. Don't be selfish about it. But you know, they gotta, <laughs> yeah, they got to come first or you're doing something wrong too. So, right. But, I, I really like the note you had early on in this conversation here about, you know, looking for something that you could do and, and be around the family. Yeah. Um, that to me, that was always real important. And I'm sure it is to, to everybody, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's, you don't get that. You don't get to do that over, you know, when the kids are small, they're only small for a while. And you're only young for a while. And you, you might ought to treasure some of that too. Uh, that's what I thought. Yeah. Good way to be. I thought I like that. Out. Yeah. Worked out. And, and, uh, yeah it works and then bonnie finds more stuff for me than i could ever find for me too so i love it, that i love that so much <laughs> it's a blessing that's for sure so she didn't let you set up a workshop in the dining room but she no, does she help had, you find stuff yeah she needed the dining room apparently so i i, I agree sort of <laughs> I, I love that i'll, I'll tell you um a, a little note about my wife she came to me one day and wanted to talk about the beaver wars Oh yeah. And I just, I just fell in love with that. And she has just been off and on researching the beaver wars because she's just totally fascinated with it. And I I just, I love that, that she, you know, didn't grow up around muzzleloading, didn't really grow up around guns or anything, but has found something that interests her in this time period and that we can enjoy and share together. And I just, I love that. And you mentioning the Beaver Wars, I just like, I have to tell, I have to tell TC about yeah. <laughs> Paisley and the well, Beaver Wars. You know, that's of immense benefit too, because when you study the way things really were, I don't know how to say this without getting politically saying it, but if you study the way things really were back then and how people treated each other back then from, you know, one region to the next region, yeah. you won't be taken in by a lot of the stuff they're trying to tell you today. You'll realize mm. that the past was a little different. Today might not be so bad. And, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's some good stuff out there too. Now it's not all, not all bad. You, it, without history, you know, what do they say? Uh, you're doomed to relive the mistakes if you don't uh, in the future if you don't know your past or yeah. something. Yeah, so, I think that's true. And, yeah, uh, and so for her to be interested in that, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, you get an education. Of, uh, yeah, they didn't teach it in school. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's the kind of it's, you know, we talked a little bit there about how things are so much different than they used to be. But the uh, the access to information has never been better How about it, you know, yeah, and, you and can... that's something that I'm I'm very, very happy about. And I try to, you know, I'm beating that horse. <laughs> it's not going anywhere, yeah. but I'm beating that horse. Yeah, you can every. Yeah. Without that boy, life would be that's one good thing that you can just, you know, Google up something. And, you know, let it take you somewhere in the books and some of the journals and some of the things that are available. And and then that little thing that you push that 100 percent and 150 and 175. So I can actually see it, too. Uh, <laughs> that, makes, <laughs> that makes it really nice. You know, it's getting harder and harder to see some of this print. And, uh, but when you can instantly digitally make it bigger. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of good, a lot of good things in uh, yeah, that's cool. When the Iroquois came against Tonti in the Kaskaskia or the Miamis and them that he had, and they he went out to make peace, and he had some of the Frenchmen and their guns there, and the Iroquois guy stabbed him in the chest, but the blade was so flimsy that it wrapped around his rib instead of stuck him in the heart. <laughs> that was about seven miles from where I'm sitting right now. Seriously? Seriously, yeah. Wow. yeah. And uh, at Starved Rock there, they've got quite an assemblage from the Newell site, it was called. Okay. I think that. That might have been as late as 1711 or so, but some of the French guns that they have pieces of 
and some of the things that were made out of kettles and like the Kaskaskia points that they rolled. Yeah. Um, and uh, man in the moon train beads that came from Mackinac. Uh, they came, they think, from Turkey or the Far East, but eventually made their way to Mackinac Island and then down the, the chain with the French. And uh, it was a little post Beaver Wars, but uh, Star yeah. Rock is, was built for the Beaver Wars um, hmm. at the time. So, yeah, uh, all that happened, uh, as I learned, here. <laughs> it's pretty cool. That's wonderful. I love to hear that. that. That passion for local history, I think, is is something that we can all dive into a little bit deeper. Heck yeah. Sure. Heck yeah. Yep. And it makes it makes it precious. It makes it real. Yeah. And, uh, it gives you roots. Without roots, you know, we're done anyways. So. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I like that, man. That's That's a good way to put it. So, uh, where can people find your work? I, I've taken up a lot of your time here. So. No, um, I'm terrible about, um, you know, keeping everything in one spot or having my own website or whatever, which I don't, and I don't Facebook. But honestly, uh, Art and Jan have posted a ton of my stuff on their website, the uh, Contemporary Makers blog. Yeah. And if a person goes there and just types TC Albert, and do a search on their site, they'll get a few pages of my stuff. And uh, they can see some of the assorted projects I've done over the years. They've been real good about it, posting everything for me. Hmm. Um, other than that, muzzleloader, every every issue has something different I've uh, decided to try and make or, or do. Um, Google search sometimes will yield a little bit under TC Albert, but uh, not a whole lot. But image search will do more than than that or they could just contact me uh if they want to talk about anything uh related to this stuff be happy to cool the cla my information's available okay. on that art site so it's it's already out there so that's not a problem okay uh, cool. but yeah the email at hunting pouch uh, at gmail.com and uh, that's me Wonderful. I'll be sure to have that um, in the show notes, you know, for each of the episode for this episode, I should say, and, and so that people can find that information and sure. and reach That'd out be- to if they have the questions. I mean, for me, I, I feel like I'm going to be thinking about our conversation here for quite a while. So oh, <laughs> there well, might be some late night emails sent your way. Excellent. Yeah, well, yeah, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me ramble on. I appreciate it. No, so, this was great. I'm amazed somebody wants to hear me ramble on. <laughs> I'm glad. I've but, I have found that you'd be you'd be surprised at at the number of people that would like to hear you ramble on. Oh um, man. <laughs> well, I am out in the middle of nowhere and I don't keep up with the whole lot. <laughs> so, so, but it's a pleasant surprise to hear for sure. to thank Mr. Albert once again for taking the time out of his day uh, and away from his family here to talk with us and, and share everything that you just listened to. Uh, I really can't thank him enough. I've taken quite a few notes from this conversation. I'm going to put as much as I can into the show notes and the description uh, for this episode, as well as at the blog post that goes with this episode at ilovemuzzleloading.com. I hope regardless of where you're at in your muzzleloading journey, you found some inspiration, some humor, and uh, and some enjoyment in this conversation, in this episode. Uh, again, can't thank 
Mr. Albert here enough uh, for coming out and, uh, and chatting with me here on the show and, and being willing to share that with, with all of you. If there's somebody out there that you'd like me to reach out to and try to talk to, please shoot me an email at I love muzzleloading at gmail.com. And I'll do my best to, uh, to organize and, and get a conversation going uh, with the folks out there so that we can preserve some more of these stories and, uh, and keep them heard for future generations. That's kind of the, the, driving focus uh, behind the podcast here and behind everything we do at I Love Muzzleloading is, is trying to make sure that future generations can can hear from the people that we've heard from and the people that we've learned from um, to try to keep all this around and, and, and do our part really and try to give back to the community in that manner. So as always, you know, my email inbox is open. Um, I'm open to any feedback and critique. Uh, got a lot of great feedback on the podcast here recently, which I really appreciate. That really means that we're we're getting out and we're making the kind of impact that I'd like to see uh, from these conversations, you know, the aspiring craftsmen and, and the wherever you're at in your muzzleloading journey, it seems like uh, you're enjoying this. And so I, I, I do truly appreciate that. As we're recording here, we have a few shows coming up. I'm going to be at a couple, um, you know, family and work kind of restricts my travel time, but uh, I'll be at the Connor Long Rifle Show in Noblesville, Indiana. Uh, that's February 18th and 19th. And then I'll be at the Kalamazoo Living History Show March 18th and 19th. It's, it's that weekend, the 19th, 18th, 19th, 20th weekend, um, in there. I don't have a calendar in front of me right now. Um, but please, if you're at one of those shows and you see me, um, come around and, and pull me aside and talk to me a little bit about, about muzzleloading. I'd love to hear, um, just like in the podcast yet, I just love hearing about how people got into it and, and what they did and how they kept their interest going in it. That's all I have for you this week. Uh, again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. If there's somebody out there that, you know, um, might be interested in this kind of thing, share share the podcast with them. Um, and if you'd like to support the show a little bit, you can uh, leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. That helps us reach kind of uh, semi-organically through the uh, the mystical algorithms out there. Uh, people that might not know that they're interested in this kind of thing, but would be interested in it. So um, we've had a few questions about that kind of thing, about how to help spread awareness and, and support the show a little bit. And really, those are those are two great things that you can do um, that really help out the program. So I, I really appreciate that. Really appreciate all of you listening. Um, I'm truly ever thankful uh, for all the support that we have here. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for watching, listening. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time.